We are going to energize the country. We need to wake up and smell the coffee. The independence case is a powerful one. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by David Swift, the author of a newly published book. It'll be out uh, soon in about 10 days. The Identity Myth, which deals with uh, different identities and different myths associated with them. Welcome to the podcast, David. Cheers, Will. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's great to have you on, David. And the first question that I'd like to ask is, uh, what made you decide to write this particular book? What was it that compelled you to write a book on identity? Well, you know, this actually, the seed of this actually happened uh, over 10 years ago, actually. I was um, working at the University of York uh, with the disability services. And one of the things we used to do with certain students, I would accompany them to lectures and take notes for them. So this one fellow, um, he, he was blind, and so I was there to take notes for him. And at one point, the lecturer, this guy was called Mohammed, by the way, um, he's from Leicester. And at one point, the lecturer was going to call out his name and call out his name and said, Mohammed, <laughs> what do you, uh, you know, what do you think, Mohammed? Yeah. And I thought, he, you know, the guy had introduced himself earlier and just, you know, said it, Mohammed, you know, like a Leicester accent. So, so I thought, it's so interesting here that the lecturer is, you know, trying to exotify this guy's name, right, to, to his face, you know, like, what well, he yeah. doesn't pronounce his name like that, why would you? And so... I thought, you know, I mean, this was, uh, you know, this has got nothing against the academic question, by the way. This isn't a personal slight on this person. But I thought it's so interesting that she thinks there's some power or, I don't know, some kind of cultural kudos, uh, maybe even some recognition she can get from him, you know, mm. if she if, if she, what she thinks appropriately pronounces his name. And so, yeah, over the, in the sort of years that followed, I think it's been more and more common that uh, different kinds of people, the politicians, the media, uh, even big business now as well. You know, they try and sort of appropriate different forms of identity which have got nothing to do with them um, in all kinds of different ways, really. You know, so it could be to win votes in a political context or to sell products or you know, to accumulate uh, social media and followers or what, what have you. But yeah, I think it's becoming increasingly common that identities can be divorced from the sort of material realities that are meant to give rise to them and they can be sort of used uh, by and of themselves if you like. And so that was really the sort of um, the sort of force behind me writing the book. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And um, in the book, you focus on um, four uh, terms of people identifying themselves, four t- categories, uh, class, race, sex, and age. Now, um, how much do you think an individual's concentration on a particular category tells you about their priorities or their politics? Or do you think that it isn't necessarily uh, related uh, to their priorities their, and their politics if they have a particular fixation on a particular category? I don't know, it's interesting, because I think uh, immediately take age and then generation, right? I think that's becoming quite prominent now with, with different kinds of politics. Hmm. So you could say, I think increasingly the sort of, you know, react, reactive politics on the right, which is, um, basically saying anything young people do is terrible, you know, they're all sort of naive and daft and all the rest of it. And, you know, this famous uh, trope of, oh, you know, go without your avocado sandwiches and your cups of coffee and then you'll be able to buy a house, you know, you're saving <laughs> yeah, yeah. about 100 years or something. So, you know, the identity of, of the young, feckless, uh, irritating millennial, uh, again, is this idea, you know, is, is being adopted by the right. But then other people on the left, 
you know, certain people on the left make the claim that actually when we want to think about politics now, old categories of left and right or old categories of class are no longer relevant and we should instead think of generational uh, inequality, if you like, and the differences between generations. And then again, a sort of similar thing happens where instead of being the feckless millennial, um, you know, not scrimping and saving, etc., now the young person becomes this sort of saviour, really, you know, who has all the right opinions on various issues uh, and can sort of save politics from the terrible state that it's in. And again, you know, I think obviously both of these things are obviously misguided and naive. And yeah, I think depending on your politics, you can use different forms of identity, you know, for, for different means, right, or for different reasons. Mm. So just looking at that idea of generation, you know, yeah, it can be used for the right to try and sort of rile up their aging base, you know, against this sort of specter of the young millennial who's going to, uh, you know, take the homes away from them and all the rest. But then the left try and do the same as well, or certain sections on the left anyway. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think it's, it's, it's interesting that you um, bring up the concept of um, conflict in relation to age, because it's something that you um, really highlight in the, the section on class as well, when you're talking about how populists, um, particularly on the right, use the examples of um, Trump and Johnson and Erdogan, use uh, class and the sort of the wide concept of the working class in a kind of like a combative way that when they're talking to people who support them, they're saying, you know, oh, you are the sort of like the, the working class people and that you have to support me because if you don't, then all these uh, liberal elites are going to um, take away things from you and they're going to, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're going to strip you of your rights, they're going to take your guns in, a, in American context or yeah. whatever. Do you think that this is something that, even though we see it as something that is, is, is quite modern, has actually quite... Um, historic roots to it because I mean if you go back to the 60s and 70s you see uh, for example uh, Richard Nixon's fixation on the east coast elites and that he was that worried that they were going to undermine him and his presidency and you see it as well with um, Reaganism and Reagan being fixated on uh, elites as as well in in, in combat to what he wanted to, to do with American reforms he wanted to enact so do you think that that kind of need to have a sort of like a combative uh, class conflict and a class identity is something that is actually quite an old phenomenon. Well, I definitely think that, you know, uh, politicians on the right trying to cast themselves as sort of men of the people and, and trying to um, win, uh, you know, popular support uh, from people not necessarily in you know, the more middle class and, and, and upper class kinds of people is nothing new. Like if you look back at sort of, I don't know, um, Benjamin Disraeli's One Nation Conservatism in the middle of the 19th century and even before that in America, people like, you know, Andrew Jackson, mm. um, sort of many politicians in the Democratic Party before the Civil War, which really, and indeed after the Civil War, you know, which cast themselves as the sort of working man's party, etc. Um, even though they would, you know, have... Um, and again, combining this with sort of the economic appeal, with the cultural appeal as well. But I think one difference now um, is, I think, with, compared to somebody like uh, Ronald Reagan or Margaret Thatcher, now the likes of Trump and, and yeah, to a lesser extent, Boris Johnson, are appealing to so-called, you know, quote-unquote, working-class voters as, you know, working-class voters. And it's the sort of working-classness that they're appealing to, right, which I think is slightly different from Reagan and Thatcher. We certainly had a lot of success in appealing to, you know, or get, you know, quote unquote, upperly, upperly mobile, right? You know, aspirational working class folks, whatever, yeah. whatever you want to call it. 
And that's not what I think likes of, say, Trump and Johnson are doing. I think they're actually, interestingly, not really trying to, I mean, obviously they're talking about levelling up and stuff, but I don't think this is the same kind of aspirational uh, language that someone like Thatcher or Reagan would use. Mm. I think instead it is actually trying to, yeah, basically occupy the sort of cultural ground of being, you know, the, the, polit- the, the appropriate political party of the working class. And I think even in some ways you could say this is even more cynical than what someone like, um, you know, Nixon, uh, Nixon, for example, was doing this, right? So again, we can say the origins of this in America comes with Richard Nixon and, you know, the idea of the, 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 the blue collar going against the Democrats in the, in the 70s and so on. But then, you know, the US, I mean, Nixon presided over a con- an economy that was in many ways, uh, I don't know, kind of like towards working class people in terms of union rights, et cetera, in, yeah. in terms of welfare than someone like, I don't know, Barack Obama did. You know? So at least with Nixon, we can say, you know, not to defend Richard Nixon, but <laughs> at least with Richard Nixon, maybe it's, it's even somehow slightly less cynical than Boris Johnson, which is, you know, not often someone's said to be less cynical than, uh, or, or more cynical than Richard Nixon. But yeah, I think, I think that's what's different, basically, is that now I don't think that there is any kind of, you know, post-war consensus or New Deal consensus economic structure in place as there was when this was uh, first done in the 60s and 70s. Mm. You know, with sort of um, the right-wing figures trying to use these cultural issues to uh, get working class votes. And also now I think the key difference is that someone like Boris Johnson, Dominic Cummings, for example, they would, yeah, they're not trying to say, oh, you're, you're like aspirational, upperly mobile working class people. They're trying to appeal to the working class people as working class people. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah, no, 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 of course it does. Do you think uh, then, because I mean, we, we, we're talking about um, class and the sort of like the differences in terms of the way that it is used, particularly um, in terms of, of working class um, people with, with with politics, particularly with populist politics. One of the interesting um, things that I noted in um, the section on um, on class is uh, the anecdote that you mentioned towards the beginning of it um, when um, Alan Johnson was recounting a um, a meeting with Tony Blair when he first became uh, a minister. And Alan Johnson had said to Tony Blair that he had three kids before uh, the age of 20. And Tony Blair famously quipped, oh, wow, you really are um, working class, aren't you? Do you think that given Tony Blair's own background, you only have to go back a couple of generations in um, on, on his father's side, his, his adoptive grandparents were working in the um, Glasgow shipyards. Yeah. Do you think that this kind of demonstrates that Perhaps in the past, there was more of a sort of um, emphasis, as, as, as you mentioned there, on the sort of like the transitionary nature of class, that it was perhaps a bit more illusionary in the sense of, you know, if you're aspirational working class, you could, uh, if, if people wanted to move from the working class to the middle class and then onwards and upwards. Whereas now the fixation is more on making a very fixed working class identity, one that isn't transitionary. Do you, do you think that that's sort of, part of the reason that we've seen this shift between the focus on the aspirational working class and perhaps the more sort of like just solidly um, working class with populist politicians? Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, I'd say there's a couple of things going on there. I mean, firstly, as you just mentioned, there's this idea that between, say, the Second World War period and then yeah, probably like sort of late 70s, really, you do have this period of, sort of social mobility in turn and more, mostly one-way social mobility that you have lots of people moving into the newly expanded middle class and so yeah you know that period uh sort of 60s and 70s especially was a time when yeah lots of people could trans uh sort of transition into that more middle class lifestyle and, and sort of security and so on 
And yeah, increasingly, obviously, that's no longer available for lots of people now. And so to some extent, I think there's been that kind of, that, that's why maybe there's now an explicit appeal to people mm. without the aspirational language. And I think also a sort of similar thing is, well, what about, say, you know, um, downwardly mobile middle-class people? Like, what about people mm. born into, you know, expecting, okay, I'll go to university and then get a fairly decent, sort of steady, stable job at the end of it. Again, that's becoming less and less common. Um, and so also, you know, the sort of existence of, um, uh, you know, sort of precari- precariously employed postgraduate students, which, you know, as I know a lot about, uh, is, is become more of a thing in politics now. Again, as I say in, in the book, maybe we shouldn't I don't know, talk too much about this group because I don't think they're necessarily that, uh, uh, I don't know, sort of homogenous in terms of uh, politics and so on. But anyway, I think there's maybe a reaction against that, uh, a reaction against the, the, the growth and development of this new group um, which is almost sort of downly mobile, uh, you know, millennial group, then I think, yeah, maybe conservative politicians are appealing to this more traditional, you know, solidified and, and apparently homogenous and, work, you know, quote-unquote white working class, which has all the same opinions on that, Brexit and cultural issues, etc., almost as a sort of um, a counterweight, if you like, to this new sort of precariously employed um, millennial sort of postgraduate class. Do you think um, part of it, because one of the things that I found interesting in not just reading your book, but reading um, books by other people, is that when we often talk about class and we often talk about um, working class identities and working class people, there is often a stereotype in that, um, you know, from sort of like the 19th century onwards, if you're working class, you work in heavy industries, perhaps you vote either liberal or labour, and um, you, 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 you know, you're, you're in sort of like a very awful position, which means that you don't have time for any sort of like kind of um, reading things and discussing uh, ideas and that kind of thing. But of course, that's just such a, a, a false idea. I mean, you only have to look at some of the um, research that's done on um, the working class communities, particularly in Lancashire, where you see really vibrant uh, communities that are interested in the arts and interested in culture and interested in politics and would you know discuss uh, these kind of things do you think that part of the problem sometimes when we're talking about things like class is that we have too much of a fixed idea about the history in the past of a particular um, class or of a particular profession and so we get this idea stuck in our minds so that when we come to the present and things are different from that uh, idea of the past we sort of say oh well this is some great uh, change or some great shift when in actuality the picture is much more complex and much more nuanced than perhaps we we first think of in, in relation to the past yeah yeah definitely definitely I mean I think we have a, most people have a difficulty anyway you know with the past and that we turn, tend to sort of generalize and, and have very simplistic images you know if you think about say I don't know 1900 people tend to think of this sort of down to nabby nonsense and you know can't imagine people at back at the time like swearing or you know having sex or you know all the sort of standard things that people used to do in the past you tend to I don't know uh, oversimplify them and definitely when it comes to things like class especially sort of you know, British working class we tend to think of heavy industry and yeah certain sort of cultural activities as well that go with it and certain political allegiances and I suppose that's inevitable because most people unless you're a professional historian don't necessarily have that nuanced view of the past Mm. but I think the problem is when um, various actors if you like politicians sort of left and right and also people who just want to sell stuff you know as well can, can sort of um, deliberately create this oversimplified image of, say, you know, the work class and working class history. And I suppose we've mentioned a bit about how 
the right can do it, you know, by creating this idea of this homogenous, you know, white working class, which was never troubled by immigration until recently and don't like what's going on with East Europeans, etc. And therefore think themselves as the new party, the working class, but also the left can do it as well. You know, I think both, both this book and my previous book, I left for itself, spoke a lot about, you know, the sort of left-wing uh, romanticization of working class history. Um, Someone else that I talk about in this book actually is about particularly the city of Liverpool, actually, and how now, whilst that is a staunchly left-wing Labour government city, this is a fairly recent, uh, you know, history. And the prior Tory history of Liverpool for most of the 20th century is just sort of airbrushed out, really. Yeah. And, you know, it's not really focused on. But yeah, I think definitely we, one of the messages of the book, I think, across all the different kinds of identities that I'm looking at, is that we need to be uh, very careful in making these sort of um, uh, block, assumption, block assumptions about whole groups of people. For example, I talk about a couple of um, people I'd always you know, imagined as sort of uh, paragons of sort of northern industrial working class uh, mm. background. Yeah. And talking about how one guy who I thought, you know, he's, he's a minor, et cetera, and I was talking to one of his old ex-colleagues and so well actually he wasn't a minor you know he was actually a pit electrician instead which is you know, like, well, that's yeah. the difference so don't get you know, mine, you know a pit electrician is like the aristocrat of the mine apparently so yeah. uh, and, then, and then someone else is a, a famous uh, trade union leader who <laughs> basically uh, a lot of people don't like hearing him described as an ex-docker because technically apparently he was a ship's planner which mm. is an office job and he never actually shifted stuff on and off of boats to yeah. ships I should say and so, therefore, people say, oh, well, it wasn't actually the doctor, you know, so it should not. So, yeah, that's it. You know, even uh, we need to be very careful with these, um, uh, yeah, generalizations about the past and indeed about the present. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, we've touched upon um, some of these ideas um, already, but I just think um, it'd be interesting for the listeners. Could you just explain um, the terms that you, you you use in the book in, in, in the section mm. on um, class, uh, the, uh, the terms orthenocrats and exonerators because I think that they're both two fascinating terms and I, and I think it'd be interesting for the listeners to just get a sort of a uh, an idea exactly what you you mean by those two terms yeah so I mean orthenocrats um, borrowing from uh, Joe Kennedy's Joe Kennedy's an academic wrote a book a few years ago called orthenocrats and in this he attacks uh, people who might sort of try and have this homogenized idea of the quote-unquote working class uh, and, and then try and use that, you know, fairly simplified or homogenized idea for their own for their own ends. And then uh, authenticrats are people who want to do something similar, but instead they want to try and challenge maybe existing pre-existing ideas about this sort of working class block in the past mm. in ways that I think are exaggerated and and, and ultimately uh, you know unfounded. So, for example, uh, say how dare you say you know that some working class people were hostile towards immigrants in the past, or you know how dare you say that most people were you know anti-LGBT in the 80s or, or things like this? So it's 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 a sort of I assume it emerges as a corrective of the sort of authenticrat nature of of, um, of certain politicians in recent years, especially when you have the likes of Boris Johnson you know, claiming to be this uh, uh, you know tribune of the, of the working class. Uh, but I think there's been an overcorrection against that. And that has led to this exonerated tendency to say, you know, how dare you say that, uh, you know, there are any dietary differences between people in Hampstead and people in Hull, you know, they all uh, go to Pret and stuff. And I actually sort of take on bridge at the idea or, you know, take the, uh, take, take the piss on the internet. Yeah. About, oh, you know, or, you know, because of people in, you know, uh, Doncaster, you know, go to coffee shops, etc. And, and basically just overplay this idea of, oh, there aren't any really meaningful 
political or cultural differences between you know, uh, Darlington and uh, somewhere uh, in Brighton, for example. And yeah, so I think these two things are um, both uh, trends of where people are using this so-called working class identity uh, for completely different ends. You know, and, and one woman's trying to use it for their own purposes and one, one for another. Uh, and it shows you how these identities can just be divorced from the actual people and then refer to. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I'd just like to turn to um, the uh, the section on race because one of the things that I found particularly interesting um, there was the the kind of um, sources that you used in relation to how people in China and people in India view sometimes some of the the uh, the, the the well-meaning intentions of people mm. on the left in relation. Um, to to them, and I just wondered how much do you think this kind of this idea of the of the the white savior that is, is particularly on the the left or, or the white leftist wanting to mm. sort of um, correct the the sins of the past? How much do you think that that is something that people in China and in India are aware of and, and see as something to to make fun of? And how aware do you think uh, people in the West who are "Quote unquote white liberals realise that there is a certain section of the the population in both of those countries who kind of like take the piss out of the way that they relate to to people in other countries." Yeah, I'd say with the former group, I've got no idea. Really. I mean, I've talked about that for a bit, but I think with the former group, no idea definitely exists. Um, I mean, in, in this book I read a few years ago, in fact, it was written at least fifteen years ago by Ron Ware. Ronald Ware is a sociologist, and she wrote this book uh, on on Britain, British identity, and other people's idea of Britain. And yeah, she goes, she's into, uh, speaking to some Indian students uh, in India, obviously, and <laughs> she basically asks them to you know give your impression of like a you know a, 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 a Brit abroad, if you like. And yeah, they all start doing this. Oh, you know, I'm terribly sorry about you know colonialism, etc. <laughs> doing these sort of faux posh accents and stuff. And it's interesting actually how. Uh, if you look at the image of so-called, you know, white people, right, in different cultures around the world, like, you know, look at the idea of white people in the comedy of Dave Chappelle or someone like that, Chris Rock, for example. It's not really the sort of white racist who's the most sort of, you know, uh, go-to character. It's the do-good and white liberal, you know, that these people use more often as, as the sort of white person. Uh, and so, yeah, definitely, I think within China, especially with things like the internet and um, uh, you know, making these things uh, sort of, yeah, you know, just some sort, of, sort of cultural interconnectedness that's come with the internet, so people can actually find out about how other countries view them and speak about them, etc. Um, you know, which is something that wouldn't be able to happen ten years ago. So I think there's definitely a, a sort of group of, of, I imagine, especially younger people in countries like China and India who absolutely do see, you know, do do good white, excuse me, do good in white people as figures of fun to be, uh, you know. Be like that, and yeah, I think it's a, it's a much smaller position of, of people over here who, who would be aware of that. Mm. Um, yeah, uh, so I was just going to say, um, yeah. in terms of the second point, but it's almost they think it's it's almost as though they think that they can't laugh at us, you know, yeah. which, is a, which is a problem, I think. You know, that's they don't necessarily appreciate that, uh, yeah, people are other people think they're in a position to, to look down on you and laugh at you actually rather than the other way around, yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that I found really interesting from from reading the section on race is it reminded me of um, an interview with Denzel Washington a few years ago. It was about, it was about well, actually longer than that, about twenty years ago, in which he said that 
when people compared him to um, Sidney Poitier, he felt conflicted in the one sense that he felt, well, you know, you're saying that all um, leading black actors are the same and you all have to compare them to Sidney Poitier. But on the other hand, he felt, well, this is obviously a, a compliment because he's one of the, the greatest actors of the, the 20th century and, and someone who, you know, is it, it's, it's just an, an incredible uh, acting uh, example to follow. And it made me wonder, do you think that in terms of the way that people in particular positions, whether it be Denzel Washington being compared uh, to Sidney Poitier or Liz Truss being compared to Margaret Thatcher or whatever, that there always needs to be, that there always seems to need to be this kind of cultural shorthand in which if a person is perhaps in an, in, in an industry or a party that people from their particular group are not dominant in, there always needs to be this sort of like shorthand comparison so that people outside of that group can sort of like recognise what they're talking about. Like, as I said, the let's trust the next Margaret Thatcher or Theresa May, the next Margaret Thatcher, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think that that's something that has been become more prevalent recently? And I mean, how damaging do you think it is, or do you not think it is damaging to political discourse? This need to have this sort of like shorthand comparison between different people who, you know, you're just comparing because they might have, the, you know, be of the same gender or of the same uh, race, etc. And it's, it's just this need to find this sort of like comparison yeah. rather than view them as individuals. Mm. Well, that's, I suppose there are two different reasons why people might make such things in the first place. And one of them is a sort of for, for cultural reasons, like mm. a sort of lazy yeah. cultural shorthand. It's almost like, you know, the need to genres and Grouping different musical acts into different categories, etc., because oh, it's just he's like this person or this person like this person, etc. But then you have the original sort of material reason why people might do that, in that the sense is it, it's pointing out, oh, it might have been particularly difficult for this person, you know, mm -hmm. to say uh, about someone like Margaret Thatcher or Sidney Poitier, or even later on, Denzel Washington. Oh, it's always like drawing attention to the fact that they would have had other obstacles maybe in their way to get mm -hmm. to that position that somebody else wouldn't have. Um, and now maybe when increasingly that's less of the case, I and mean, if you think of, say, Liz Truss in, uh, in say, becoming a successful woman in conservative politics, clearly that's no longer as tough as it was back in the 70s and 80s when, when Thatcher did it. Mm. Um, but now maybe that's why, okay, we can say, ah, but, you know, I'm a, a, a strong woman in politics. So, so you know, you've got the sort of, the, the, the trope, if you like, or the cultural thing of, of, the, of, the, of the woman, you know, battling against the odds to succeed in the conservative party in the national politics. Even if actually the fact that you're a woman is not really necessarily that much of a problem for that thing anymore, but she can still use it, you know. Like one in, in somewhere else in the book when I'm talking about um, uh, like like the, the the identity of being a woman, what it means to be a woman, to be a feminist, and I quote uh, Gia Tolentina, the American writer, and she points out how so much criticism of right wing women now, well, you know, we're kind of uh, might be slapped down by saying, oh, you know, but she's a woman, she's a feminist, right? Whether it's Kim Kardashian or Melania Trump or whoever, you know, people might make a, a valid criticism against them, and then someone else might try and defend them from a feminist position and say, you know, ah, but she's you know, a woman, you know, making it in that world, etc., as though that mm -hmm. somehow uh, means you can't really criticize them. And so I think that could be a thing now whereby. Um, you know, someone like Liz Truss, for example, uh, can use the feminist angle as a reason to vote for her and make her Tory leader and, and make her prime minister. Even if I don't know what I don't necessarily know what that has to do with feminism. You know, that wouldn't necessarily that would not. I don't think be a, a victory for women or 
for women in general, it'd be a victory for Liz Truss. Mm. Something else is interesting, though, with, with sort of acting categories, though, I think, because I, that's something that only very more, much more recently, I would say, than being a successful woman in, in British politics. It's become only more recently, I would say, easier to be a, a African-American actor who doesn't get cast in parts, you know, just as black people, mm. if that makes sense. So, yeah. I mean, Denzel Washington's a brilliant example of this because he was in one of the very first films I can remember seeing, and this is only a few years ago, Flight, it's called, right? he plays in Air Vampire, when the black main character isn't either, you know, a drug dealer or the president. So mm. it's, it's the first time I'd seen, like I can remember seeing anyway, when it wasn't based on, uh, you know, like a hero or villain type, it was like an ordinary person, in this case, a, you know, a pilot, and he was black. Right, mm. and even then it was because it was a true story. I think <laughs> like the original yeah. person was black, so they had to cast the black person to play. Yeah. So again, I think that's I think the politics of that are slightly different then because you know you people you see people attacking the Oscars or the Golden Globes recently because they didn't realise that none of the Golden Globes, are, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, who the Golden Globes, none of them are black. At least none of them are African American yeah. anyway. Um, and so I think that's the sort of thing whereby again you can see even ostensibly very liberal organisations like Hollywood studio execs and whatever. Mm. When it comes down to it, you know, they're not deliberately doing this, but oh yeah, sure, actually none of them are black, you know, none of their uh, organisation are black. So I think that's maybe shows a difference whereby actually set, you know, pointing out that somebody uh, is a black actor who's succeeding does still have some worth actually, because I think it reflects the still existing material fact that actually, yeah, it is harder for a black actor to get roles and to succeed in Hollywood even to this day. But Liz Truss or someone like that, you know, a defender of Liz Truss or I don't know, Kim Kardashian or Melania Trump, sort of rolling out, ah, but this is a woman who succeeded in the man's world, you know, to mm. deflect criticism of a successful woman. I think that maybe has less um, less relevance. Mm. Yeah. Just on the on the subject of... of um... Uh, sex and of gender, which of course has been, you know, sort of like one of the um, great topics for debate and discussion in in the past few years, particularly on social media. Do you think that in terms of sort of like sex and gender and the way that it is um, discussed and debated, that there is a certain um, perhaps instant hostility between either sides of whichever side on the debate people lie and do you think that that sort of like makes people discussing it a bit harder in terms of if you're discussing it from two different points of view that there is an automatic assumption that one particular uh, person or, or, or group that is making a particular argument associates with everything that is associated with that argument and the same is for people on the other side of the argument do, do you think that that's something that is just particularly apparent related to, to sex and gender, or do you think that it's something that can be applied to all of the other sort of like identity categories that you discuss in the book? Yeah, I think there definitely is something about the issue of sex and gender, whereby I think it is, it, it tends to be, I think somehow even more, not exactly polarizing, but it tends to cut across existing political divisions more, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. So for example, uh, whilst you have lots of people on the left however you want to categorise on the left, be it like the old school Marxist left or the more sort of, I don't know, Blairite left or whatever, who are quite, who are a bit more sceptical, say, quote-unquote, identity politics, you know, that exists. And indeed, maybe people on the right uh, who are more old school, you know, free marketeers and, and very left on cultural politics. Generally, I think 
a lot of the other so so-called cultural war issues do sort of map onto pre-existing political divisions. But I think the sex and gender really cuts across them. I mean, you know, so many women uh, that I knew of or discovered years ago as sort of left-wing feminists, people like uh, like uh, Linda Bellos, for example, um, Judy Bindle, um, who else was I thinking of recently, actually, the other day. Um, anyway, people who you know, back in sort of the 80s and 90s, we're getting abused for being uh, for being feminists and for being lesbians and so on, and for being on the left. People more recently, like Selena Todd, you know, the Oxford professor and, um, yeah. and a sort of socialist as well. People, I mean, a lot of these women would think that I'm some sort of, you know, soft left, you know, social democrat setout. You know, these are not Blairites by any stretch of the imagination. These are definitely not conservatives in, in any way. Um, and yeah, the, uh, Beatrice, Cam- Beatrice Campbell, by the way, was the other one I was thinking of earlier. You know, I, I discovered Beatrice Campbell, this book that she wrote sort of laying into George Orwell. You know, so she's absolutely not some sort of you know, blue labor-y, uh, labor moderate type in any sense. You know, she's a you know, firebrand Marxist feminist, etc. Anyway, the idea that these women could be recast as bigots you know, and actually on the right uh, in any way, I think is 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 a bit uh, you know is a bit of a stretch. And so I think it's interesting that with issues like this. People can't say, okay, you agree with me on virtually every other issue, you know, stuff around the economy, climate change, LGB, right, you know, maybe not the T bit, mm. and various other things to do with foreign policy and whatever. We just disagree about this, about trans rights and gender identity. Mm. And even then, in many cases, it's not as though, uh, I mean, okay, in many cases, they are, there are pretty stark differences. Mm. But in many cases, it's actually, you know, it's, it, it's more about the sort of particular areas of policy, I think, rather than fundamentals in many cases. Mm. But even then, it seems that they can't say, okay, well, we, we'll agree to disagree about this one particular specific thing because we agree about everything else. Mm. I think that seems, for whatever reason, it seems harder for that to happen with sex and gender issues than it is with, um, you know, a lot of the other so-called cultural issues nowadays. Uh, you know, I don't know enough about it to speculate too much as to why that is, but I think mm. maybe one reason is that people find it even more difficult to accept the terms of reference, you know, yeah. in terms of um, who or what is a woman and what that means. Mm. And I think when that's when that's the case, people would say, well, this isn't just a polite disagreement, and we can just agree to disagree about this and agree about everything else, because actually this is about you know, someone's right to exist or some where they do exist. Mm. And again, I think in a lot of cases that's... Um, you know, I, I find that unconvincing very often when, when you know, people say that someone's opinion generally threatens the life of somebody. Again, I talk about in the book how, um, you know, nearly all of the trans people who are killed are in, are in, are in South America. Actually, it's, it's relatively speaking um, fairly rare for a trans person to be killed in the UK. And, you know, obviously, uh, more, you know, so even one death is more than it should be, but still, mm-hmm. fortunately, it's relatively rare compared to, say, someone like Brazil, where it's... And so therefore, I think I, I am sceptical about how much, say, somebody's opinion on the internet or having a speaker speak at university can seriously endanger the life of, say, mm. a, you know, a student who might read or hear this opinion. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, obviously, this is an area where the differences are amongst the sort of the main partisans of the differences are sincerely held. One of the problems is, and this is actually talking more about the themes of my previous book, is that actually also all sorts of people on the internet can just jump onto this idea, you know, and then uh, throwing that with one side or another, even if it doesn't affect them directly, mm. because of the sort of compulsion of the internet to, you know, broadcast, to pick an identity, whatever it is, you know, to nurture and to broadcast it. And so therefore all kinds of people who are affected by this issue directly, um, you know, can, can sort of pick sides and let everyone know what side they're on. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Do you think that part of the reason um, that kind of these discussions seem often to be more intense than discussions on other aspects is that for many people it feels much more personal than discussions on, say, for example, the economy or foreign policy, um, which um, you discussed that people can have in common, but obviously a, 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 a disagreement on um, trans rights and the idea of gender and, and, and sex and sex-based rights. Do you think it is because there is a, a, a sense that for both sides it is far more personal than some of those other issues, that, that that's why there is such an intensity of, of disagreement? It could well be. I mean, I think I would... You know, I'm not one of the person who has the opinions on this. Maybe mm-hmm. I would have to be so to have more insight into this. But I think that, uh, presumably for a lot of women, uh, there are, you know, very personal reasons for their, for their position on this one way or the other. And obviously for, say, trans people themselves and, and you know, their sort of friends and family, etc. again, they also have very personal and vested reason to care about this. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, your ordinary person who might just be... Um, sympathetic to you know a sort of um, sympathetic to, to people other than themselves i maybe for certain people it's more personal but definitely i can imagine that having said that i think that it lends itself to being one of these issues that people can easily adopt as yeah. something you know it, it's, it's easy to say you know put your pronouns in your bio and stuff like that and or a certain flag in certain places and then quickly and effortlessly indicate or signal what side you're on, right? That you're on a particular yeah. side, and this is and this is you. And I think that the the lower the bar for um, I don't know, the lower the bar for participation or support for a particular cause, I think the the, the, the less sort of committed supporters you get, if that makes sense. You know? mm. So yeah, yeah. if you actually don't have to do much to quickly and easily signal your support for a cause or whatever it is, then many of the people who are doing so and maybe not doing so with the, the best motives, mm-hmm. you know, they might be doing so for sort of fairly cynical and self-serving reasons. So yeah, I can definitely imagine that lots of people, there are lots of people for whom this is a deeply personal issue and, and good luck to them. But at the same time, you know, unfortunately, the nature of the internet and social media means that people are sort of feel compelled to, you know, excite with these disputes and then let everyone know what's either on. Now, the final category um, in, in, in terms of identities that you discuss in the book mm-hmm. is age. Now, age, of course, is perhaps something that, I mean, as we um, discussed at the start of the podcast, is something that ferments a lot of disagreement between the stereotype of the the quote-unquote boomer and the stereotype of the quote-unquote millennial. Do you think that the kind of disparity between generations that we see um, both in political debates and in general online discussions is something that's more intense now than perhaps the disagreement that previous generations had with the preceding generation or, or the generation before that? It's interesting, is and I think this is one of the interesting things about history, one of the, one of the many great things about history, is that you can look back at various uh, uh, generations throughout time in different co- uh, countries, and you can see actually how certain complaints, uh, you know, certain issues, like young people don't respect their parents anymore, is almost universal you know, mm. in, in all different kinds of countries over hundreds of years apart. Um, and certainly if you look at, say, I don't know, the sort of 1960s, uh, or if you look at sort of... Um, pre-First World War era, actually, just a look at two periods in the past 100 years or so. 
you can definitely see a lot of the same sort of language of, oh, you know, the UFO, feckless, no care about these uh, silly things, etc., and uh, abandoning traditions and all the rest of it. And um, so that's certainly an idea amongst the young people, maybe of the old people have messed up the world for them and, and there's not much for them to, to get out of it, etc. So definitely I think certain, um, to some extent, I think this is not necessarily that new. Uh, and actually, I think one of the points I try and make in the book is that there isn't really this great. Um, it's whilst there is now in the UK clearly an alignment where older people are more conservative, younger people vote Labour. Mm-hmm. As recently as 2010 or 2015, there wasn't really this stark difference. You know, at the 2010 and 2015 elections, uh, there was not much difference in terms of generation, um, not as much difference in terms of university graduate support. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they maybe favoured the Conservatives as late as 2015. And again, amongst renters, you know, the, the renters, I think they, the Conservatives in 2010, I think. You know, um, so I don't think that there's this great idea between, say, the homeowning uh, boomer generation and the uh, cast adrift, you know, permanently rented millennial generation uh, or younger. For, for one thing, you know, when many of these uh, boomer <laughs> Home opening boomers die, right? Their, their sort of housing wealth is going to go to their children and grandchildren, etc. So, in that sense, I think class is, is more important than age in that respect. So, I think there's been a slightly disingenuous move by some on the left to try and regroup and say, right, okay, the, the so called traditional working class, we're never going to get them, never going to get them back, or at least not without uh, sacrificing some. Uh, I don't know, policy issues that we're not willing to sacrifice. So let's rebrand ourselves as, as the party or the movement of young people and private rent, etc. And I think that that is not only, like, I think it's politically advised for a couple of reasons. And one of those reasons is that yeah, it's not the case that young people are all massively left-wing. But even though there's a clear disposition of young people to vote Labour, yeah. there's not one big homogenous block of young people, uh, you know, certainly not on the, on the global scale and not even in the UK whereby all young people agree on uh, various issues. So actually, I think whilst uh, sort of generational inequality and age differences and politics and culture is important and you know, needs to be uh, understood, we should also still consider things through traditional lenses like class, which I think is, is just as important as ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're coming towards the end of the podcast, David. It's been wonderful to have you on. I think it's been a fantastic discussion. And I have one final question for you. Mm-hmm. Now, um, today, uh, Gito Harry became the new communications director for Boris Johnson. And when Gito Harry asked Boris Johnson um, how he was uh, feeling, uh, whether he, he thought he would um, be able to continue as prime minister, the prime minister reportedly sang, I will survive. So my final question uh to you is this, David. If you had to choose one song to communicate how you were feeling at any point in the day, what song would you choose? <laughs> uh, yeah, so in this day in particular? Well, uh, this day in particular, it can be any yeah, day anything. that you <laughs> like. You know what? Okay, fair enough. So, you know what? I really like Sledgehammer by Peter Gabriel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a great song to have as your sort of morning alarm, you know, to wake up to and, and get you up for the day. Yeah, that is an absolute, that's a great choice, David. <laughs> very invigorating. That is a very invigorating song. Uh, thank you once again for coming on the podcast. If people want to find out where they can buy The Identity Myth 
and where they can find out more about you, where should they go to buy the book? Yeah, to find so out more I mean, you, you can buy it, uh, you can pre well, depending on when it comes out on the 17th of February. So if you're hearing this on or after the 17th of February, you should be able to buy it in bookshops and certainly online, you know, for the usual online retailers. Uh, and yeah, if you're here before the 17th, please pre-order uh, because that'll be, uh, you know, really great for me if you could do that. Excellent. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast, Dave. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam, and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast, or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one. Thank you.